Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John uh, chapter 14. And our custom here is to uh, work our way through the text of Scripture, kind of section by section. We've been in John's Gospel for over a year. We're, the goal is to, uh, to wrap it up by Easter. And I uh, have the, the full preaching calendar schedule for 2020, and so that looks to be the case. Uh, I'm excited about that. And then, as of course, we'll get into the chapters uh, 19 and 20 of John and the resurrection as we get as we approach Easter. So excited about that. Um, this morning we'll be covering uh, John 13:36 through 14, chapter 14 and verse 7, 7. Several years ago, I was asked to give a commencement address for a group of Christian high school students. So I prayed about it, and I thought about what the Lord may have me say, and I, I wrestled with it. I gave the title of my speech, I gave it this title, A Realistic Word for Graduates. And you know how these addresses typically go for those who are sort of going out into the world, and they're, they're going to brave all their new surroundings and kind of be on their own. They're told this, the world is yours. There's nothing you can't do. If you believe in yourself, in fact, if you believe it, you can achieve it. Well, I wanted to add some pastoral and what I thought to be some wise uh, counsel to the mix. My intent was to encourage those, again, who are either going out into college or into the workforce, that if they were in Christ, they never had to worry about failure, at least as it relates to their relationship, their status before the Lord. Sure, they would do some things and, and maybe some would have some incredible successes, but even then they, were, they would fail at the same time. They would go through failure. And what I wanted them to know was that if they belonged to God, if they put their faith in Jesus, that God promised to be with them through all of it, through their successes, through their setbacks, they would be loved by their Heavenly Father. In fact, their identity was secure in Jesus. So, again, trying to give a realistic word through the course of my address, I made the point that not everybody has the gifts to be a surgeon, for example. Not everybody has the intellect to be a, a rocket scientist. Not everybody has the athleticism to, to play in the NBA. Not everybody has the vocal chops to be an American pop star. And I said, that's okay. It's okay because your identity is rooted in who you are in Christ and so your achievements, your abilities don't define you. Well, what I had to say lasted really only for about 25 minutes, but it was uh, shockingly polarizing. I had no idea it would uh, have that effect. One person suggested that I need to go watch again the little engine that could so I could better understand uh, that we can do anything if we just believe in ourselves. Some parents were really grateful for what they consider to be biblical uh, sound counsel. Again, others were upset. One person said my speech was, quote, pure bunk and not encouraging uh, at all. Now, why such vitriol? Why so many haters? Well, because we've been taught to believe, again, that if we just really look inside, if we believe in ourselves, if we believe that we have the ability, there's nothing we can't accomplish. And I have to be honest with you, I actually, I like that message. That message really resonates with me. But the reality is it's not true. It's not true. We don't have the ability to do everything. And particularly in the spiritual realm, we really can't do anything in our own strength. We're going to see that uh, this morning. John chapter 13. Uh, let me start by reading verses 36 through 38. The word of the Lord reads this way. 
Simon Peter said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus has just given the disciples what he calls a new command. And we looked at that last week and what, what it was that made that new. It was actually a very old command, but there were some aspects of it that were new. Um, and then he sits down with the disciples. Now they're only 11. Judas has gone out into the darkness. And he shares with them, again, this very intimate moment. And he tells them that he says, little children, I'm not going to be with you much longer where I am going, you can't come right now. Well, you know, Peter, he's not very good at listening. He's really good at talking, and he's very good at making bold, brash statements, but he's not one for a measured response. And so when Jesus says that he's leaving, Peter says, what do you mean I can't go with you? He said, no, this is not right. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you're going to lay down your life for me? No, the sad reality is you will deny me three times before the sun comes up. Now, Jesus does say again that the disciples will join him later, but that's not good enough for Peter. He wants to follow Jesus now. We've seen this throughout as Peter sort of speaks up. His impetuosity is his undoing. And not only is Peter impatient, but he has the whole equation turned upside down. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. But actually, the whole point of the Christian faith is that Jesus lays down his life for us. Peter has it twisted. He's emphasizing his would-be sacrifice when the Christian faith is about Christ's sacrifice for us. And this, by the way, is not the first time that Peter has made such bold statements, is it? We saw just a few, it was a few weeks ago, actually probably a couple of months ago in terms of the real time, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer Peter says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. You're not going to suffer. And then just a few weeks ago, we saw when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and it comes to Peter, and Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. seems like every time he speaks up, he's making some bold, brash uh, statement. But his, his greatest problem, though, was actually not even, it wasn't his impatience. It wasn't even his boldness. Peter's greatest problem is that he has way too much trust in his own ability, way too much faith in his own strength. Way back in the 4th century, the great theologian Augustine wrote, Nor do we say this about Peter, because we have pleasure in blaming the first of the apostles, but in looking at him we learn that no one should place his confidence in human strength. Now, it was a few hundred years later that John Chrysostom, the great preacher, the man known with a golden tongue, he summarized Jesus' words this way. What, what are you saying, Peter, when you say, I can do what I say thou canst do? You will learn by experience that your love is of no account unless grace from above is present. From this it is clear that Christ permitted this fall of Peter's because of his concern for him so that he might learn his own weakness. Now, it would not be wise of us, I don't think, to be true, too critical of Peter, because I think if we were there, many of us would have done the same thing. We would have, having spent almost three years with Jesus, eating and walking and spending time with Him, we probably would have said something very similar. 
Peter loves Jesus. Peter is devoted to Jesus, and Jesus loves Peter. Peter's ready to follow Jesus wherever, but what he fails to realize is his own limitations. He thinks way too highly of his own ability. And here's the first point I want to make from this. Christianity is not a religion for heroes, but a divine rescue of the weak, broken, and utterly dependent. See, again, Peter's problem was not that he was passionate. In fact, I think the Christian faith could use more passionate men. That's not the problem. The problem was he thought way too highly of his own ability. He was placing way too much confidence in his own strength. Peter thinks, and we've seen this again just about every time Peter speaks up, that the Christian faith is mainly something we do for Jesus instead of something Jesus has done, continues to do, and will do for us. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you've missed it. Your boldness won't even last through the night. You know, we've talked about this before, but I think if there's one virtue that is universally praised in the Western world, at least, it's, it's not honesty. We see that people, professional athletes and coaches and politicians and leaders can lie and equivocate and deceive and, and still they're highly esteemed. So it's not honesty, I don't think. Certainly not fidelity. Monogamy is, is, is a joke in so many movies and sitcoms. It's not fidelity. Um, it's not even really being trustworthy. But there, if there is a, a value that is cherished in the Western world, it must be, I think, independence. We really, really value. We, we respect those people who can handle things on their own. And isn't this just about what every pop song and rap lyric and celebrity tat tattoo, it has something to do with, on my own, I've got this, I don't need anyone. But the Christian faith is actually about the opposite of independence. Christianity is about becoming more and more dependent, more and more reliant on God's grace, more and more trusting in the gospel, more and more desperate in prayer. Weakness is the way of strength for the believer. In his book, Holiness, J.I. Packer writes, If I could remember each day of my life that the way to grow stronger is to grow weaker, if I would accept that each day's frustrations, obstacles, and accidents are God's ways of making me acknowledge my weakness so that growing stronger might become a possibility for me, if I did not betray myself into relying on myself, my knowledge, my expertise, my position, my skill with words, and so on, so much of the time, what a difference that would make to me. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that that by week we should be as Christians timid or, or, or reserved or scared. We should actually be the exact opposite because we know there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, as we just sang about. We know that when we sin, and we will sin, there's nothing that can separate us from God, nothing that can ultimately condemn us because of Christ's finished work. When God sees us, He sees us as perfect, even when we fail. So really, as Christians, we should be the boldest of all people. But our strength and our confidence is not in ourselves. It's rooted in and only rooted in our position before God in Christ, His righteousness, which is ours by faith. Now, we also know that death is not the end, so that creates within us another sense of boldness 
We know God has something in store for us that's beyond even what we can imagine. Look at verses 1 through 3 of 14. Let not, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So from the beginning of time, or at least let me say it this way, at least from the fall of Adam, one of the chief motivators for people to persevere through very difficult trials is the hope that something better is on the other side. In fact, for centuries, we can definitely say for centuries, one of the chief motivators, again, for endurance is the recognition that this suffering that I'm going through right now will not last forever. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Something better is on the other side. Janine and I had a chance this weekend to see the movie Just Mercy. What a terrific film. It's unbelievable. Uh, heartbreaking and yet hopeful at the same time. And one of the, I think it's a film that ought to cause each of us to examine our own hearts for even a hint of bigotry or racism. We ought to collectively mourn over the injustice and violence demonstrated by people in our own state, perhaps people in our own family. One of the things that the movie reminded me of, though, was a book that I read several years ago called American Negro Songs, 230 Folk Songs and Spirituals. This beautiful book that recounted some of the stories behind some of the spirituals and, and quote, work songs of the 18th century African-American slaves. And again, one of the things that really stood out to me, which I thought was so powerful, was when the, the folks who were being persecuted and enslaved and mistreated, when they looked to, to find a place for hope, what they did was look to the future and the rescue that, they, that would come at the, ho, at the uh, return of Christ. So you may recall many of the spiritual songs focused on deliverance and freedom that will one day be theirs when Jesus would return. Songs like Swing low, sweet chariot. Rise, shine, for their light, for your light is a coming. I want to be ready and trying to get home. There's something about the promise of a glorious future. There's something about the promise of, of renewal and delivery and rescue that inspires hope right now. In fact, it's fair to say that, that even for Jesus... What lay ahead of him was one of the chief motivators for him to come and die and endure the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And listen to this next phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the things that sustained Jesus Christ during his greatest trial was the exaltation and glory that would be His as a result of His obedience to the Father. So even Jesus looked forward to what was in store. So, so we see, again, going all the way back to immediately after the fall of Adam, one of those things that sustains us when we're sick, one of the things that sustains us when we're grieving and mourning, is the recognition that this will be over soon. Something better is in store. Well, here in John 14, to a group of puzzled and exhausted, frustrated, we might say, scared followers, Jesus says, I'm going, but you will see me again. 
And when you do, it will be in a place, in a home, that I have prepared for you. Now, if you grew up reading the King James uh, Version, or you have a King James Version this morning, um, you may have memorized this particular verse as saying, In my Father's house there are many mansions. Well, that's, that's actually a bit misleading. Um, the, the Greek word amene, is, it means uh, dwelling place, or it could mean uh, room. It also means abode, but there's no indication that it means mansions. Heaven is pictured as the Father's house, and what we will have is a place of our very own in our Father's house. A room, you could even translate it a suite. What's meant to comfort us is not that we're going to have our own mansion, but that we will be at home with the Lord. So what should excite us is not what our mansion may look like. You know, does it have a a train that goes room to room like uh, Ricky Schroeder's in the old Silver Spoons uh, 80s sitcom? Or what should excite us is not that we may have a golden toilet, you know, toilet of pure gold or or a bowling alley. It's not the mansion that we're, we're excited about. It's the fact that we actually get to be with our Lord forever in the eternal presence of Christ, God's Son. Here's our second point. Because of the perfection and preparations of the true hero, a glorious welcome awaits those who have, those who have failed, even immeasurably, yet believed. We're not heroes. We're not heroes. God's law demands that we obey it perfectly in every way. God's law does not grade on a curve. It's not, well, you've done better than so-and-so. What God requires of us is absolute, complete perfection. And what every single one of us has done is failed to be perfect. And not just failed sort of barely. It's not as though we just barely didn't make it. We have failed horribly. The chasm between us and a perfect God is infinite. We're not heroes. But because of the perfection and preparations of the true hero, Jesus Christ, who actually did satisfy all the requirements of the law without fail, who was perfect in every way, even including his very own motives, he was perfect in every way so that by faith, by believing in him, his perfection would be imputed to us so that we could have a home, an eternal home with God through Christ. Now, what are the houses going to be like? What will the rooms look like? What will the flooring be? I don't know. We're not really told that much. There's some imagery used in some of the apocalyptic literature and so on. But we are told in Revelation something about this new heaven and new earth. The same John who wrote the gospel that we're studying writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Even those with the greatest skills and imagination cannot fully comprehend what God has in store for us. It's beyond our wildest dreams. But I think we can try. And I want to try with you for just a moment. I'm indebted to Elise Fitzpatrick for her writing and teaching on this, but I want to try. I want you to imagine that your tired, exhausted, and aging body has been upgraded to a body that is pain-free, 
Now it resembles your, the body that you're familiar with, but without any of the aches or difficulties. Your body has been transformed into something beautiful and strong and will never ache again. When you bend over to pick up an object, your back won't throb in pain. Your knees won't crack or pop when you get up from sitting. When you overswing a golf club, you won't feel it in your neck and shoulders. When you hike to the top of a hill, you won't be winded or you won't need a nap. You'll never wish you looked different than you do. You'll never be dissatisfied or embarrassed by your body or proud of how you look. You'll never look at your body and think, when did I grow hair there? I haven't seen that before. You'll never look at your body and think, when did that wrinkle show up? None of those things will ever cross your mind. You will know that you've been made glorious by Jesus, and that will be enough. Imagine a world where you see friends who have passed on before you, friends who were in Christ, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe even a child, maybe an old classmate, and you're in no rush to catch up because you have all eternity. So you just sit and you just enjoy each other, and the silence is not awkward. You don't feel like you have to find out everything at once. You feel physically and emotionally at ease. And you never wonder what they think of you or if you said something dumb or if you should have said something better or if you said something offensive. There's no jealousy over past experiences. There's no envy between you. No wishing you were somewhere else. You are fully entranced in the moment. Imagine a world where the joy you felt, maybe in a, in a worship service, and, and you just felt the, the presence of God or maybe it was at the birth of a child, or maybe it was on your wedding day. Imagine a world where all you ever feel is that joy, only it's better than all of those other scenarios I mentioned. Imagine a beautiful city with an incredible skyline, the tops of the building engulfed in the most incredible, most beautiful sky you've ever seen. And you walk around the city, and the city is perfectly clean. There's no litter there's no trash. The people are friendly. No one ever honks at anyone else. And you meet new friends and you hear their stories. And even though you've just met, it feels like you've known each other forever. And actually you have forever to get acquainted. And in this city, you have your own home. You don't have to worry about rent increases or flood insurance or tornadoes or earthquakes. For the first time ever, your home feels actually like home, like the place you were created to live. And you don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks of your house. You don't have to worry about how clean you keep it. You're not tempted to sin. You're not tempted to be envious of what someone else has. You just feel at peace. You never long to be anywhere else, but you're free to go anywhere you want. And imagine Jesus comes to your home. And you know it's him because you see the scars in his hands. And he has the most beautiful and engaging smile. There's a tenderness to him that you can almost feel. It's, it's like it's palpable. And you say, Jesus, we were just talking about you and sharing with one another how you rescued us. And Jesus says, I was just talking about you too. 
how much you are loved. And then Jesus says, I've got food, and he arranges on your table the most incredible meal. The flavors are so rich, your taste buds are taken to a new level. You never realized anything could ever taste this good. And your mind, body, and heart are completely at peace. You feel like you've been loved forever. And in fact, you have. Now, this is only a tiny, tiny glimpse of the home that Jesus has prepared for those who have trusted in him. But just, just a tiny glimpse of something we can't fully get our minds around. Now, I love the timing of Jesus' remark in verse 1. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Remember, in the original text, there weren't chapters or verses, and so the, the text just sort of flowed on. And uh, here we have Jesus saying in, in verse 12, uh, or 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, what might their hearts have been troubled by? Well, certainly confusion. Like, well, what do you mean you're going to go away? Where are you going that we can't go with you? Certainly fear. Again, they've been with Jesus sort of almost every moment for th almost three years. And so, wait a second, you're leaving us? So confusion and fear, uh, obviously sadness. I mean, the one that they loved so much and who loved them was going to be moving on, uncertainty. That's probably what 10 of the 11 were thinking, I'm guessing. All of those things. But what do you think was going through Peter's mind? Well, I'm sure that he probably felt like he'd just been smacked down. He says, no, no, Jesus, wait. I'm going to go wherever you go, and I'm going to give up my life for you. And Jesus says, you won't even last through the night before you betray me. So surely Peter is feeling, he's feeling like he's been beaten down. He's feeling guilty. He's probably feeling like he said something just totally stupid. Peter has brashly pledged his allegiance to Jesus, misunderstood the point of the Christian faith, Christ dying for us, not us dying for him, and then been informed that he would soon betray Jesus in scandalous fashion. And what does Jesus say to him? Don't let your heart be troubled. Right after Peter's failure, right after Peter's thoughtless remark, in other words, Jesus doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want us dwelling on our failures. He wants us to repent, learn from them, and rest in his forgiveness. Guilt is actually the devil's tool. The devil wants us to stay guilty and be so overwhelmed with guilt and shame that we feel like, I just can't do this anymore, I'm done with this. Jesus wants us to rest in his forgiveness. Jesus says, even to a guilt-riddled Peter, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe in me. That's where your hope must rest. Now look at verses 4 through 7. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me, or do know him, and have seen him. Jesus says, you know where I'm going. And almost before he can get the words out, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know how to get there? And Jesus makes one of his most memorable statements in all the Gospels. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, one of the tasks of a communicator is to know your audience to the best of your ability and to communicate in such a way that it fits the context that you're in. Well, if I were preaching this passage in New York City or if I were in the Pacific Northwest or if I were in London, I might have a different emphasis than I do here. The meaning of the passage doesn't change. The meaning is the same, but how we explain it and how we apply it certainly does. In some places in the world, it would be fitting for me to spend the next or the bulk of our time discussing the uniqueness of Jesus over and against other so-called gods. But here, I think the emphasis, rather on, the, on an explanation of religious pluralism or an apologetic of Jesus as the only way, I think the emphasis should be, perhaps, on what sort of access we have to God through Jesus. Because I don't think anyone here, or maybe someone, maybe one person or two or three, but I don't think hardly anyone here is asking the question, why isn't Mohammed the only way? Certainly they are in many places of the world. Or why isn't Joseph Smith the only way? And really, even though this passage is most often used as a way to defend the exclusivity of Christ, and I'm fine with that, I think that's okay, that's actually not what it was originally intended for. Remember, Jesus says these words to whom? To the 11 disciples. His point was not to throw out this Christ-exclusive text to the world to kind of taunt them, to throw it in their face. His point was to say this to His disciples, which He did. Why? to comfort them for their assurance. What Jesus is saying to a group of scared, confused, again, and and shame-filled followers is, it won't be your work, it won't be your sacrifice, it won't be your obedience that gets you to the Father, and it won't be your disobedience that keeps you from Him. It won't be the world's philosophies, it won't, won't be the world's ideas of success, It won't be the other prophets or so-called saviors. There's only one way to the Father, Jesus says, and it's through me. And I'm here, and I'm with you. And you belong to me, and you are mine. This is meant to comfort the followers of Christ. And we'll talk more a little bit next week about this phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life, because it's so powerful. But for now, I want to emphasize this aspect of it. This is our final point. The unchanging comfort for the believer is that we will soon be with our Heavenly Father, a delight made possible by Christ's finished work. This is the comfort for every believer. Soon, one day soon, we will be with the Father and we will enjoy all the things that we just talked about. And this is a delight that's made possible by Christ's finished work. And it is, in fact, one of the greatest encouragements and motivators for our perseverance is the hope that is set aside for us in Christ. If you watch the national news, you may have seen or read about a tragedy that took place in Corona, California last week. And it was one that struck three families from the church that I served the one that we came from. Uh, There were six teenage boys who climbed into a Prius, and they went, and they went ding-dong ditching. You know what this is? You ring someone's doorbell, and you run off and sort of speed off. Well, they picked a random house. 
They didn't. Uh, they picked the wrong house, as as it would be seen. And they rang the doorbell. They got in the car. They sped out. Well, the guy who lived in that house got in the car and he chased them. And he pulled up beside of them, rather next to them, and he started slamming his car into their car, crashing into them. And then he got behind them, and he ran them off the road into a ditch, into a tree. And three of the six boys were killed instantly. And these are families that Janine and I know well. Two of the three families have been in our home, and we've enjoyed meals, meals together. And so we read this, and of course, we're I mean, just devastated. What senseless, unbelievable violence. So it was right after that I started getting texts and phone calls. And, you know, of course, 2,000 miles away, it's hard to figure out really how to minister to them during this tragedy. And, of course, really, there are no words to take away their pain. What can you actually say to someone who's just lost a 14-year-old son or a 16-year-old son? So I talked to one of them, a very good friend of mine, and he, and he just kept saying the same thing over and over. He was 16 years old. He was 16 years old. And now he's gone. And so I listened, and, I, and, and Jenny and I both, through, through phone calls and texts, we wanted to let them know just how much we love them and how we're hurting with them and how while we can't understand the pain that we're going through, we're here for them. And our hearts are crushed as well. We wanted to share with them the sweet things we knew about their sons, how energetic they were and compassionate and thoughtful and fun. And we wanted to let them know those things will not be forgotten. And then at the right moment, I wanted to let them know, one day you will see your boys again. One day you'll be with them again. One day you'll hold them again. You'll laugh with them again. Well, yesterday, the dad of one of the deceased boys texted me. Here's what he said. He said, I wanted to share this with you. Jacob wrote it in preparation for his baptism. We found it just as Ramona and I were looking to hear from God. Here's what their son Jacob wrote recently. A Christian is a person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus took the penalty for their sins by dying on the cross and then rising from the dead to take their burden of sin off their shoulders, and that he overcame sin and has saved them from it, they also believe they have a special place after they die for themselves and other Christians called heaven to be with God forever. I gave my life to Christ not long ago, and I put my faith in him. I plan on getting baptized within this year because I feel the need and longing to. Although I still have been through ups and downs, in my faith, I still love and serve the Lord. This was this young 16-year-old's testimony before he was going to be baptized. And praise God that he brought this young man to saving faith before this tragic accident so that now he's in heaven with Jesus. And this is what the, the guys, uh, the, Jacob's father sent me immediately after that text. He said, that's our faith and our hope and the truth. What could be more encouraging to the parents of a 16-year-old boy killed by a maniacal driver in a fit of rage, robbed of the rest of his life, than this? My son trusted in Jesus, and now he is with his Savior, and we will see him again soon. If you're going through something this morning, something terrible, only you know 
course, the pain you're going through, and, and that pain is real. And I would never try to minimize it. But I do want you to know whatever it is, there's something in store for you if you are in Christ that is equally real, something just as real, and in fact, something so beautiful and so glorious and so wonderful that even the suffering you're going through now can't even compare with it. If you're in physical pain this morning, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, if you're in a hard marriage, married to a difficult man or a difficult woman, if you're in a job that just drains you and leaves you empty, if you're in a relational conflict with one of your own children or one of your parents, if you're in a home where there seems to be no love, if you feel totally alone, whatever you're going through, as difficult as it is, and all of those things I mentioned are incredibly hard, but whatever it is, you have a home prepared for you by your Savior where you will enjoy everything you've dreamed of and more you could possibly imagine. And this is not some pie-in-the-sky fairy tale. This is, as my friend said, reflecting on the death of his 16-year-old son. This is the truth. This is true. This is as real as the person in front of you. Whatever you're going through, you have reason this morning for hope because you have a Father who loves you and a Savior who made it possible and certain for you to be with the God who created you forever. You have reason for hope this morning. Last week we sang the song, We Will Feast. We're going to sing it again this morning because in light of what we've just studied, what a beautiful reminder of the hope we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning. And I want to pray for the families who lost their teenage kids. I want to pray for the Avoscus. I want to pray for the Hawkins family. I want to pray for the Ruiz family. I want to pray that you would comfort them this morning in a supernatural way with the reality, the recognition that they will be with you. And they will see and hold and hug and laugh with and run with and eat with their sons again. Because their sons put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, for the one who's here this morning who's just beaten down by the cares of the world, struggling, suffering, exhausted, Father, I pray that you would encourage him or her with the hope that is in store for those who are in Christ. I pray that it would be very real to us. Make it, cause it to be real. Enable us to believe it by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.